calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy 1920s? New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover, and you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Mastication. It's the scream that I most remember. It's all I can hear when I dream. I'll dream about the screaming, about those last few seconds of terror. And I'll wake up and I'll wonder to myself what my life would have been like if none of this had ever happened. If I'd never even found that house. I would feel less guilty, I'm sure. Not that it does me any good to dwell on the hypothetical, daydreaming about what could have been. It's over now. And there's nothing I can do to change what happened, as much as I'd like to. The best I could hope to come from this unburdening, is that perhaps I could keep what happened from happening again. In that way, I guess you could think of this as a cautionary tale. Probably, though, you'll accept it as being nothing more than an urban legend. And if that's the case, well, the truth is I can't blame you. Because there isn't a day that goes by when I don't wish that this was only a legend, a story, an absurd work of fiction. I, too, don't want to believe it. But I still wake up every day with the memories, the knowledge of what I saw and experienced. Ironically, it was all the result of my lifelong interest in the paranormal. For years, I was captivated by mysteries and unexplained events. 
But those years of fascination culminated in something so overt, something so unmistakable in its defiance of the laws that govern our world, that it would completely change my trajectory. Not only did I abandon my research of the unknown, but I came to avoid the topic entirely. I spent my whole life hoping to see something impossible. And then one day I did. And I wished more than anything that I never had. I was in my mid-twenties when my interest in unexplained phenomenon led me to start a YouTube channel where I researched and discussed various topics and reported events. I'd grown so tired of hearing the same old cases that have been repeated since the days of unsolved mysteries. The Enfield poltergeist, the Dyatlov Pass incident, and Betty and Barney Hill, God bless their hearts, had all made the rounds more times than any of us could count. I wanted to go deeper, to uncover cases that had been forgotten, and find things that had gone unreported on. One of my videos discussed an author named Stedman Kirsch, who disappeared while researching a ghost town. Another one talked about an obscure artist named Brother Simon, whose mysterious art installations were alleged to provoke insanity among viewers. I had gained a modest following over time, and eventually my channel's level of popularity grew well beyond anything I had ever expected. My viewers would write to me frequently, suggesting topics for me to discuss. I was constantly surprised by how much people engaged with my work. On the day it all started, I had just put out a video. And while I didn't spend too much time monitoring the performance of my channel or indulging in the responses to my uploads, I had gone online that day to read some of the comments on my latest video. It was there that I saw one viewer point out that in my monologue, I had mistakenly used the word antidote, when in fact I had clearly meant to say anecdote. God damn it, I said. I felt a flash of humiliation and thought about how much of a headache it would be to fix the audio and re-upload it. Fuck it, I said. I decided instead to go outside and take a walk. There was something so excruciating about making mistakes like that. Will people think I really don't know the difference between antidote and anecdote, I thought to myself. I had wandered onto a walking trail near my house that was overgrown with weeds. The trail zigzagged through a rural area that was dotted with homes, most of them connected by dirt roads and long gravel driveways. Towering spruce trees creaked overhead as they swayed in the breeze. I had hoped for this refreshing landscape to clear my mind, but for some reason I was still stewing on the comment. Why did I have to take everything so seriously? I suppose it probably stemmed from my fear of appearing incompetent. I often felt like I was on the verge of being revealed as an imposter, a phony or a clown whose incessant hunger for attention had driven him to con his way into becoming a niche internet micro-celebrity. What was it that made me so... I stopped, mid-thought, my attention arrested by a simple house that was set in a wide hollow and positioned behind a driveway that was lined with neatly cut juniper trees. It was a two-story house, its wooden siding painted a pale yellow color with dark brown trim, all standing below a steep, pointed roof. 
But what had caught my eye about the house was the fact that all its windows were boarded up, even though the house didn't look neglected or abandoned. And even more strange, the boarded windows had been painted to show an illusion of the house's interior. Most of the windows had white, flowy drapes painted into the upper corners, and some even included minor details like armchairs or lamps, so that at first glance it almost appeared as though you were looking through the window and into the house. But like a fake tunnel painted on the face of a cliff by Wiley Coyote, closer inspection revealed all the windows to be obvious facades. If I had only seen the house from the road, at the end of its long driveway, I might not have even noticed the peculiarity. But because I was following the trail that ran along the house's narrow property, I saw the painted windows from a closer vantage point, and from a perspective that didn't make them look very convincing. Unlike most houses that have boarded up windows, though, this house was surrounded by a neatly kept yard. The lawn in the backyard looked freshly mowed, and the trees lining the driveway were neatly cut into perfect little cone shapes. Why would someone go out of their way to keep up the appearances of an abandoned house, I wondered. Or, if the house wasn't abandoned, why would someone board up the windows of a home that they were living in? And not only that, but paint them over. It seemed like it could have only been done with the purpose of making the house look inconspicuous, and in turn it had basically done the opposite. But still, if that were the intent, what did they have to hide? What was inside that house that caused them to paint that uncanny depiction of suburban normalcy on its boarded-up windows? As I continued to study the property, I also noticed that it had no mailbox or address placard displaying its street number. I wondered if it was a grow house. I had heard of people using houses in the area to grow cannabis, filling them with high-intensity lights that they used to stimulate the crop. Because they didn't want to tip off their neighbors, they sometimes boarded up the windows. Did the house I was looking at contain a high-yield cannabis operation? Or was something else going on? Being an up-and-coming investigator of all things strange, I decided this would be a great topic for one of my videos. I went back home and grabbed my backpack, a flashlight, and a couple cameras. I didn't have any fancy ghost hunting gear like EMF meters or frequency scanners. I never had the intention of doing any so-called ghost investigations. My interest lied more in reporting on events that couldn't be easily explained. But being as I had happened across this perfect subject for a creepy video, I figured it was high time for me to do some boots-on-the-ground investigating of my own. After leaving my house and starting back along the walking trail, I took out one of my cameras and began to record my approach. Okay, so I was just out here walking around. I'm at, um, actually, you know what, I don't know if I want to say where this is because I don't want to be responsible for anyone coming out here and trampling over someone's property, but as I'm about to show you, there's a house out here that just doesn't make sense. I turned the camera in the direction of the residence and began to zoom in. A light wind had picked up and it animated a pair of willow trees that stood in the house's front yard. 
The drooping trees swayed in a movement that looked almost dance-like. I tried to hold the camera as steady as possible, but if you watched the footage, you could see a slight tremor in my hands. There was something uniquely disquieting about that pale yellow house, and I had a feeling it went deeper than its windows. It's obviously a well-kept house. The property's all in good condition. No signs of life, though. The nearest neighbors are probably about a quarter mile in either direction, so there's not really anyone nearby I can ask about it. I just don't understand these windows. They're all boarded up, as you can see, all hand-painted. This one's even got some interior detail painted on it. It's like a hallway or a something back there. There's just something so off about it, don't you think? It's like... All I can think is that it's... It's either supposed to be some kind of novelty attraction or... I don't know what. I wonder if I can get inside. I walked around to the front door and gave it a firm knock, putting away my camera in the off chance that someone answered. The front door felt surprisingly heavy and firm, like it was made out of a single piece of wood, cut from the trunk of an enormous tree. I listened intently for sound, something to indicate movement from within the house. But all I could hear was the rustling of the trees as another breath of wind pushed its way through the hollow. Suddenly, an audible creak emanated from the house. I couldn't tell if it was from the wind pushing up against the house or from some movement inside. I began walking around the perimeter again, looking to see if one of the boarded-up windows was loose enough to be pulled free. I left my camera in my backpack as I did, because while I was definitely dumb enough to try and get inside that house in the first place, I wasn't quite dumb enough to incriminate myself while doing so. I walked around to the eastern side of the house, where there were two basement windows that were both boarded over and painted gray to match the color of the foundation. I tugged at the corner of one of the windows and was surprised to see the board pop off almost immediately. Apparently, it had only been fixed in place with finishing nails. Behind where the board had stood was a rickety old window frame, fitted with a dusty pane of glass and through it I could see almost nothing. Because the windows were boarded up, the inside of the house was pitch black. Bummer, it's not a grow house, I said to myself. I unzipped my backpack and pulled out the flashlight, clicking it on to illuminate the murky interior of the house. I could see a room that was filled with clothes and old furniture. There was nothing creepy or obscene, no decapitated mannequins or rotting goat heads. I began to wonder if my idea for a creepy video wasn't going to pan out. And then, once more, I heard a deep creak emanate from within the house. I sat back on my heels and listened. The creak had a strange pitch to it. It didn't sound the way wood usually sounds when it creaks. For some reason... It made me think of bones, like the sound your knuckles make when you give them a good crack. 
or when you stand up after sitting for a long time and your knee makes a dull pop. For reasons that I struggle to make sense of now, the sound only made me want to see the inside of the house more. I looked back down at the dusty window. It was big enough for me to squeeze through if I could get it open. I dug through my backpack and found a flathead screwdriver. The window was mounted on hinges, and I thought that if I could dig the screwdriver into the seam of the opening, I could get the window to swing open. I pressed the tip of the screwdriver into the groove, and with a little force I felt the window come unsealed. Despite how rusty its hinges were, it swung smoothly open, almost gliding as it receded into the darkened basement. I looked through the hollow opening, smelling a mild but musty scent. It felt almost too easy for some reason. And yet, still mildly humiliated by the antidote fiasco, I felt a driving need to come up with something good. Something that nobody else had brought to the table. A discovery that was mine alone. And so, after taking another look around the area to make sure nobody was watching... I lowered first my backpack and then myself through the opening. When I got inside, the first thing I did was take out my camera and my flashlight. The house was an impenetrable kind of dark. With my flashlight on, though, I could produce just enough light to film. The first thing I noticed were the walls. They were finished with that laminated paneling that's printed to look like wood that fixture of basement walls from the 80s. The thick shag carpet was a saturated maroon color, and overhead stood a tiled acoustic ceiling. There was a wooden dresser in the corner that was covered with cobwebs, and a pair of armchairs that faced each other in the center of the room. And all throughout the basement, there were stacks and stacks of clothes. Moth-eaten sweaters lay in dusty piles, Jackets and coats hung from rickety steel racks, and stacks of pants and dresses sat on the forgotten old dresser. There were innumerable shoes as well, pairs and pairs of them. Boots, high heels, sandals, loafers, leather work shoes that looked to be about a century old. It was like whoever had lived there had just up and left with all their belongings still inside. As I looked around... Awe-stricken, the house produced another series of deep creaking noises that again made me think of bones cracking. Only this time, I could feel something accompanying the sound. It was like a ripple had run through the ground, like the foundation had shifted beneath my feet. It was subtle and only lasted for a second or two, but I could still feel it. When the ground settled, I pointed my flashlight up the stairs that led to the rest of the house. They were fitted with the same shag carpet that covered the basement floor, and that same fake wood laminate covered the walls. As I began to ascend the stairs, I finally admitted to myself just how afraid I was. I was trying hard to appear steady and calm, to make my voice sound controlled on film, but I was fighting a losing battle. With each step I climbed, my breathing grew more rapid. Though I didn't say it out loud, I began to feel as though the stairway's walls were closing in on me. 
Maybe it was just the encroaching darkness that devoured everything my flashlight didn't touch. But the nearer I got to the top, the more suffocating the stairway felt. By the time I reached the final step, I felt like I was about to brush my shoulders against the walls that surrounded me. As I stepped onto the ground floor, I felt the spongy grip of linoleum beneath my feet. I shined my flashlight around and saw that I was in the house's kitchen. It was situated against the rear of the house, and appeared to lead to a dining room on one side and a living room on the other. The kitchen was comprised of all the normal appliances you'd expect to find. The refrigerator was an egregious mustard color, but everything else just looked like mundane implements. There was an oven with an electric stovetop, a sink, and even a bulky microwave sitting atop the tiled kitchen counter. At least, that's what these things appeared to be. When I tugged on the handle of the refrigerator and tried to open it, I found it wouldn't budge. I tried the oven, but it was fused shut as well. They seemed not like real appliances, but like the fake replicas you would find in a model home. I tried the microwave, but it wouldn't open either. Nor would the drawers, the cabinets. Nothing in that kitchen was real. It was all a front. My mind began to race as I wondered what precisely I had gotten myself into. Every cell in my body was urging me to run, to get out of that house as fast as I could. But for some reason, I persisted. I don't know if it's because I was actually that committed to solving the mystery, or if I just wasn't willing to admit to my audience how scared I was. But I proceeded from the kitchen in the direction of the living room. Like the other rooms, the living room was still fully furnished. A teal couch sat between two end tables, and behind them, a staircase led to the upper floor, complete with a surprisingly intricate wooden banister. The wallpaper was a dark green color, and consisted of a striped pattern that I found, for some reason, nauseating. As I stood there, I heard another one of those guttural creaks that the house would emit, and again I felt the rumble of movement beneath my feet. Feeling my pulse quicken, I swung my flashlight around at the kitchen, but it was wrong. Something had changed. The kitchen was still there, only it was further away than it was supposed to be. The dining room, which had been on the other side of the kitchen, now stood before it. In the beam of my flashlight, I could see a large oak dining table, surrounded by eight wooden chairs. And beyond it was the entryway to the kitchen. It was like the house had rearranged itself. And not just resituated the furniture, but completely changed its floor plan. It's trying to distance you from the exit, said a panicky voice in my head. It was the most disorienting thing I've ever experienced. Being in that house, surrounded by darkness, and confronting the fact that the very walls were moving. I felt unspeakably vulnerable as though at any moment something might reach out of the surrounding blackness and smother me, put me out like a flickering candle. I stood for a minute and tried to control my breathing. I watched the beam of the flashlight swing back towards the living room, scanning my surroundings to make sure I was still alone. 
It lit the wall, the floor, the couch. And then the beam of the flashlight illuminated something that shouldn't have been found among those lifeless domestic items. On the far wall, just above the staircase, the light landed on something that looked like flesh, like the surface of a massive exposed ribcage. I let out a scream of such pure terror and revulsion, it would later be one of the things that my viewers pointed to when they made arguments for the video's authenticity. In my frightened response, I had also jerked the flashlight, causing me to lose sight of the pale, throbbing section of flesh. When I settled the light back on the spot where it had been, it was covered by the revolting green wallpaper. I knew, in that moment, that I needed to run. Whatever was going on in that house, I no longer needed to understand it. I only wanted to escape it. I ran towards the front of the house, thinking it would be easier to make an escape through the front door than to go back through the basement window. I shined the flashlight across the wall, hands trembling as I felt around for the door. The house produced another disturbing creak, and I felt the hairs on the back of my neck raise on end. I wondered how the house was rearranging itself behind my back. Suddenly, I felt my hand collide with something cold and circular. It was the doorknob, I realized, sighing with relief. I tugged on it, but it wouldn't budge. I stepped away from the door and looked at it under the light of my flashlight. I ran my fingers across it, and it was then that I realized why the door had felt so solid when I'd knocked. It wasn't a real door. It was just a doorknob mounted on the wall with a rectangular design of molding around it to make it look like a door. A deep sense of doom overcame me. But before I could allow myself to wonder if I would die in that house, I pushed off of the wall and ran through the dark. I ran through empty rooms that I was certain hadn't been there a moment before. I ran down long hallways with ceilings barely tall enough to stand in. It's creating a maze said the panicky voice in my head. And just as I felt myself teetering on the cusp of absolute hysterics, I stumbled across a bastardized version of the kitchen, where, in a cramped space between the refrigerator and the oven, stood a rectangular opening, no more than three feet tall, that appeared to lead down to the basement. If there even still was a basement beneath that impossible demon of a house... Oh, fuck, I said to myself, but I knew I had no other option. So, after taking a few deep breaths, I ducked down and descended through the opening. Hunched and trying to maneuver my way down the stairs as quickly as possible, I was nearly knocked forward by a violent rumbling. I steadied myself and felt the distinct sensation that something was behind me biting at my heels. When I hit the basement floor, though, I saw a golden ray of hope. A single beam of sunshine extending from the window I had entered through. I ran towards it. And I could still feel the house rearranging itself, trying to pull the window away from me. I stumbled over ragged piles of clothes and clawed my way towards the window. 
When I finally reached it, I jumped and grabbed the rusty windowsill, kicking my legs around with lunatic energy while I clawed at the ground and pulled myself through. When I got home and reviewed the footage, I was astounded at how much I had managed to capture. From the dining room rearranging itself, to the pulsating flesh on the wall, to the grotesque sounds the house had made, I had captured basically all of it. I was horrified to see that there was even something in the footage that I had been completely spared of in the moment. It had occurred as I was descending the hellishly confined staircase back down to the basement. A cacophony of noise erupted, and something had sent me tumbling against one of the walls. As I bounced off the wall, the camera and flashlight were momentarily pointed back up at the stairs behind me. And in those few brief seconds, I had recorded something utterly horrifying. A massive set of jagged teeth emerging from the darkness and snapping at the camera. I couldn't see any detail beyond the jagged teeth to determine what kind of creature they belonged to. But whatever it was, it was either unnervingly massive or extremely close to the camera. In the few brief seconds that the teeth flashed across the screen, they were nearly large enough to fill the entire height and width of the passageway. And they were so garishly crooked and sharp, I was terrified to look at them even on my computer screen. The footage was so genuinely horrifying, it was the only video that I didn't have to add any music to in order to create a dramatic effect. All the effect I needed was right there in the footage. And I didn't even need to do any fancy editing, either. No jump cuts or slow motion replays. I just let the footage roll, adding simple narration in parts where I'd been too frightened to speak. It was really only then, when I was at home, watching the footage unfold on my monitor, that the weight of the situation really hit me. When I was in that sinister labyrinth, I stopped caring what power was behind the phenomenon. I just wanted to get out of there alive. But back there in the security of my room, I was faced with the fact that I had encountered something completely beyond explanation. And not just that, but something with malicious intent. Something that had tried to kill me. I had always believed, at times even freely speculated, that there may be things in our world beyond the grasp of science and reason. But having come face to face with something so vicious and unfathomable, something that so deeply defied any practical explanation, I felt changed, broken in a way, terrified at the prospect of living in a world where something so evil and sickeningly crafty was allowed to exist. I'd gone into it hoping for nothing more than a creepy video, but I'd barely come out of it with my life and I had the footage to prove it. But would anyone believe it? Before I uploaded the video, I recorded a brief introduction where I gave some context and explained that I was presenting the footage raw and completely unedited, and that the viewer was free to draw whatever conclusion from it that they wished, and that I strongly, strongly advised nobody to go looking for that house. The police would later ask me if I knew that my video would elicit such a huge response, to which I replied that of course I didn't, that I had anticipated it would get the same amount of traction as all my other videos. But I think the truth is even more elusive than that clean-cut answer I had offered them at the time. The truth, I feel, 
is that even then some part of me knew that there would be consequences. That something terrible would happen if I exposed the world to that house. I could give you some spiel about how I believed the process of sharing my experience would be cathartic. Or how I believed that if I shared the video that we as a community would have a greater chance of understanding what had caused it. But I think the truth is that I just wanted it to be seen. Before I uploaded it, I sat on the footage for a couple days. I needed to let my nerves settle, if nothing else. When I posted it, I titled the video, This House Will Devour You. It had a running time of 7 minutes and 13 seconds. And, though I didn't know it at the time, it would be the last video that I would upload to YouTube. The day it went live, 20,000 people watched it. In under a week, it broke 100,000 views. Soon, it was being shared all over the internet, and viewers were passionately debating its authenticity. One person described it as either proof of the supernatural or some of the best independent CGI work of all time. And while I was eager to try and somehow prove that the video was authentic, it wasn't long before there were simply too many comments for me to keep up with. I was getting emails by the dozen from people who wanted to know where the house was. Some of them even came from fellow YouTubers who wanted to conduct investigations of their own. I didn't respond to a single one, though. I wasn't about to give the location of that house to anyone. And I especially wasn't going to give it to a grown man who called himself something like Professor Creepy McPasta. But it didn't really matter what I did anymore. The sheer panic and terror I'd experienced in that house had become the object of thousands of people's fascination. A community of people was captivated by the thing that had tried to kill me, and I felt like no matter what I did, I couldn't make these people understand that this place I'd shown them wasn't exciting or entertaining. It wasn't a cheap thrill. What I experienced in that house was the purest form of fear I have ever felt. In so many of the countless ghost and haunting cases I've read about, people have sensed malice or animosity coming from the residence or entity. Some hauntings have even conveyed feelings described as abject hatred. But I think what I felt in that house was even more frightening. It was a sense of total indifference. Like, whatever was in that house clearly sensed the depth of my fear and it just didn't care. Like the inescapable horror I'd felt was just a byproduct of whatever it was really trying to do. Ten days after I put the video out, I awoke to a message from a friend named Alyssa. She said that she'd seen someone on social media posting about being close to finding the house. She told me it was a guy on Instagram named Carl Porteous and that he'd written in one of his stories that he'd found out where I lived. And, because I had stated in the video that the creepy house wasn't far from my own house, he claimed to be closing in on the area. I was immediately furious. How'd he find out where I live, I wondered. I hadn't ever disclosed my location in any of my videos. The most ardent of my followers could have probably deduced that I lived in Utah, but Utah is a big state. I rolled out of bed and looked up the guy's Instagram profile. Carl Porteous looked to be in his early 20s. 
He was a tall fellow with curly red hair that hung down to his shoulders. In his bio, he described himself as an avid skeptic, and he sometimes made posts that were aimed to debunk high-profile hauntings and paranormal encounters, like the photo of the supposed ghost boy taken in 1976 at the famous Amityville house, or the alleged UFO pictures taken by Billy Meyer in the Swiss countryside. But most of the photos that Carl posted were just of him and his family. And in fact, he actually seemed like a pretty nice guy. But when I viewed his recent stories, I felt a pit begin to form in my stomach. Alyssa was right. Carl had posted a series of stories earlier that morning, in which he had clearly referenced me and my video, without actually tagging me, of course before going on to explain his intent to find the house. Unsurprisingly, Carl had a highly skeptical attitude towards me and my video, and promised his viewers that he would reveal my hoax. Who the fuck does this guy think he is? I asked myself. In his most recent story, posted only a few minutes before, he'd taken a picture of some pine trees at the foot of a hill. Along with the image, he wrote, Terrain looks familiar. I think I'm close. If I find it, I'll live stream going in. I could feel my pulse begin to race as I read the message. I recognized those pine trees and that hill, and I could tell that he was, in fact, close to the house. Perhaps even closer than he realized. I typed a direct message to him on Instagram that said, You have to stop. You have no idea what you're getting yourself into. I hit send and then I put on my shoes and ran out the back door, still wearing the sweatpants I'd woken up in. I began running down the trail, but I'd made it no more than 50 steps when a notification came up on my phone. Carl Porteous is going live, it said. No, I said, fuck, no! I watched in horror as the video extended across the screen and that strange yellow house came into view. I mean, it's a creepy house, I'll give it that. It sort of makes your skin crawl the way the windows are painted. It's, uh, right here, let me zoom in. You guys see that? It's so weird. Our friend must have left in a hurry, because as you can see here, this basement window is still uncovered. So, there isn't much to look at out here, though. So I guess let's head inside and see how haunted this place really is. I felt a surge of anxiety when I realized I'd forgotten to put the board back over the window. I wanted to reach through the phone and stop him. I started running again, but I was still at least half a mile from the house, and already I was beginning to imagine what might unfold if I didn't make it there in time. Let me just get my flashlight on here, one second. Alright, cool. You guys can see, right? I mean... It's definitely got that strange kind of vibe about it, but it's, uh, I don't know, it's not really anything to write home about. I feel like there's a, there's like a lot more though, so let's see what's going on upstairs. Man, it's got this weirdly narrow stairway. Here, let me just step back for a second. Take a look at that. You see that? I mean, I've definitely got some questions for the person that built this place. Hey, you know what? If you have questions for the architect, put them in the comments. 
you guys hear that? It almost sounds like there's something moving. I can almost feel it through the through the railing. Hello? Is anyone else in here? Shit, I probably sound like I'm fucking losing it, man. It's just so fucking dark in here. I think my senses are just on high alert. Holy shit, I just heard it again. You guys can hear that, right? I think there's... I think there's something... Hey! Hey, no! No! In the instant before Carl's live stream abruptly came to an end, something unmistakable manifested from the darkness. It was a set of sharp, jagged teeth. Rows and rows of them filling the screen before it suddenly went black. I sprinted the rest of the way to the house, lungs burning as I ran. But when I arrived, the house was gone. The only thing there was a crumbling concrete foundation that looked like it hadn't supported a structure in decades. I wondered if I was mistaken, if I'd arrived at the wrong house. But it couldn't be. The driveway was lined with the same cone-shaped juniper trees, only not as manicured as they'd been before. And the same droopy willow trees stood on the opposing ends of the lot. How? I said to myself. How? I stood there on that empty foundation, repeating that word over and over again, until it got dark. The following day, I went to the police station and showed them my video. I told them about Carl going to the house and disappearing. When I finished talking, one officer looked at me skeptically and smiled. Do you know this guy? he asked. This Carl Porteous? No, I told him. Then how do you know it's not just somebody playing a joke on you? Because I was right there, I told him. I was in that house. Right, he said. The house that's not there anymore. The police made it clear that they weren't taking me seriously. But the following day, when Carl Porteous's family filed a missing persons report, the police were suddenly very interested in me. They interviewed me several times over the next few months, but my story never changed. According to the cops, neighbors in the area said that there hadn't been a house on that lot in years. But the police couldn't deny that it was the location where Porteous's cell phone last pinged. I think they were more baffled by my story than anything. And while they seemed to consider me a person of interest for some time, they didn't have much to go off of when their only evidence was a vacant lot and a recording of a shaky livestream video shot from within a dark and indiscernible house. I took down all my videos and deleted my channel shortly after. Whatever had happened in that house, or that thing that looked like a house, completely decimated my interest in the unknown. I didn't want to believe anymore. And I definitely didn't want to be responsible for another tragedy. And while I've walked away from most things mysterious, there has been a single legend, a single supernatural myth that I haven't been able to let go of. 
It came from a book called American Myths and Urban Legends Through the Centuries that my aunt gave me in middle school, and for years it existed only as a vague memory that I rarely revisited. But in the days after Carl disappeared, I returned to the book and reread the story, finding haunting resemblance in its premise. It was titled The Walls That Surround You, and it originated in the American West in the early 1900s, a time when many cities in the West were still in their early stages of development and were accumulating large populations of migrant workers. According to the legend, there existed, somewhere, a house. It sometimes appeared as a lodge or a cabin, an affluent suburban home, or even a modest hut. But this house was not built by a team of construction workers. It wasn't occupied by a happy family. This house wasn't even a house at all. It was more like a living thing. And within this thing that looked like a house, there were many of the things you would expect to find in a house, like rooms and closets and hallways. But really, it just had mouths. Each of its doorways was really a mouth. And if someone, perhaps a vagrant worker looking for a place to stay, entered one of those doorways, it was just as deadly as entering the jaws of a massive predator. The intruder would be hastily consumed, and the house would disappear, only to reappear in some other vacant lot, in some other developing city. The book offers very little explanation as to where the legend came from. But it doesn't really matter to me whether it has an official source. It's the only myth that I've come across in my years of research that I'm certain is true. I have no doubt that somewhere out there, on the outskirts of some city, there stands a house, or a cabin, or a lodge. And maybe it has some peculiar touch, some odd feature to help lure in prey. I couldn't tell you what it might look like, but I could tell you that somewhere inside, perhaps in the basement if it has one, it still contains the tattered clothing and forgotten belongings of all its victims, not least among them a man named Carl Porteus, a man whose dying screams are still a fixture of my nightmares. Hey, Jeff here. Uh, If you enjoy my podcast, I just want to let you know that I have a Patreon that you can subscribe to. It's $3 per episode, and you get to listen to every episode a few days early. Plus, you also get access to my full-length audiobook, Solace. It's sort of a cosmic horror slash mystery story where this journalist uncovers uh, unexplainable disappearance and sort of becomes obsessed with it. You can listen to the first 30 minutes for free in the episode titled Solace. The Patreon also has its own RSS feed, so you can listen on whatever podcasting app you like. And the link for it is in the show notes, as well as in the bio for the show. But if you can't see it, it's patreon.com slash A-C-E-P-H-A-L-E. 
You can also leave a rating or write a review. That goes a long way for helping the show get listeners. You can follow me on social media. The links for Instagram and Twitter will be in the show notes as well. And of course, just thank you for being here. It really uh, seriously means a lot that you listen to this. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwine, erstwhile monk turned traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available.